You know, as human beings made in the image of God, we, we can reason, we can think, we are somewhat self-aware, but it's amazing how good we are at sometimes having all of the information and yet still being able to miss the point. Like the two boys who had spent the night at their grandparents' house, and when they went to bed, the grandma had told them that, that she was going to make waffles for them the next morning. And when they, when they woke up the next morning, they could already smell what their stomachs were growling for. So they shot downstairs into the kitchen just as grandma was taking the first waffle off of the waffle iron. No one, neither wanted to wait for the second one. So they began to fight over who got the first waffle. But grandma, in all of her grandmotherly wisdom, said, boys, Jesus would put his brother first and let his brother have the first waffle. They were quiet for just a beat before one brother looked at the other and said, you be Jesus. (laughs) See, he missed the point. Or like the two buddies who went hunting and they, uh, They planned a camp, so they set up camp that evening. They built a fire and and visited after they'd set up their their tent. And as the the night grew near, they climbed in their tent and went to sleep. But in the wee hours of the morning, one buddy nudged his other awake and just said, Hey, just just look up there at all those stars and just, just tell me what you think. His buddy thought for a minute and said, well, I see millions upon millions of stars. And I think if, if a percentage of those have planets the way our star has planets, then there's billions upon billions of planets. And if that's the case, at least a few must be like ours. And if that's the case, then I think there might be life out there somewhere. And his buddy said, well, I think someone stole our tent. <laughs> see... All the information, we can still miss the point. Well, this morning, we are going to close the lid on the book of Galatians. And I don't want us to miss the point. It's kind of hard to miss the point of the book of Galatians if you just read it. It is a full-throated defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest news on earth. Paul constantly, his life's work, his mission given personally, he told us, by the risen Jesus, he went into the world with this message. People are justified by grace through faith alone. What that means is that what makes God change the way he looks at us. You see, in our natural state, when God looks at you or me, he sees someone who deserves wrath, condemnation, eternal judgment. And what causes God to change the way he looks at us and not look at us as deserving of wrath, but as pleasing in his sight. What causes God to change the way he looks at us to an adopted son or daughter of God, accepted, righteous, good enough. What causes God to change the way he looks at us 
is not when we become good enough. It's not because we improve. It's because God simply declares some people to be those things. His child, pleasing in his sight, righteous. That declaration of righteousness, Paul calls justification. And God promises to give that declaration to all those who believe that God killed his son, that God judged his son instead of those of us who actually deserved it. He was in our place. That's the gospel. And because, Paul told us, because that's the, good, the gospel, that we are, we're saved 100% by what he did for us and 0% by what we do for us. Because that's true, then Paul told us the dangers of something we've called legalism. And legalism is just the idea that I can make myself more in God's eyes, then God makes me through that free gift, that, that declaration that I'm good enough. Paul was at his angriest in the book of Galatians because of legalists. Because those had shown up around these churches in Galatia preaching a, what seemed like a slightly different message, which Paul said was not the gospel at all. Somehow their message is that, that me and God, we have to work together to make me what I need to be, to be in God's good graces, so to speak. We wind up, when we get there, with some sort of moral code that must be defended for God to like me and performed. And then Paul sort of closed the body of the letter. We studied it last week where he makes sure we know that does not mean that God has made some system by where we just have this thing called grace and we can just uh, live by what our desires desire and not have any worries because God is gracious. Paul said that don't be deceived. God's not a sucker. God will not be mocked. We still will reap what we sow, though, thank goodness, there are certain things eternally we will never reap for what we have sown. And now, on his way out, Paul is going to sort of summarize, in a way, the message of the book so that we don't miss the point. Let's read our, sadly, our last paragraph in the book of Galatians so this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. In the New American Standard, they read this way. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Verse 15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. That's how Paul concludes, and he signals to his original audience that he is concluding by literally picking up what we would call the pen and beginning to write himself. In the ancient world, um, uh, you know, apparently Paul's laptop was on the fritz, right? So uh, he was using a slightly different medium to publish this letter. And in the ancient world he lived in, the first century, writing was not something people did all the time. Uh, And so it was very common for a formal work uh, the author of which would use something that's called an amanuensis. We would just call it like a scribe or a recording secretary. You know, the, the quill hadn't even been invented yet to use with ink. They, they used what's called a stylus. It was easy to make a mess. It was easy to write illegibly. I find it very easy to write illegibly with a ballpoint. Um, so Paul has been dictating this letter we just learned. And at the very end, to signal to his original uh, readers that he's sort of landing the plane, he picks up the stylus and starts writing in his own penmanship that would have looked very different. And he writes it largely. I believe this is for emphasis. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe Paul wrote with large letters because he had eye problems. I, I don't necessarily think that. Um, This is for emphasis, and he probably has a rather unskilled hand, but he is signaling, pay attention. But he does something really cool here, I think. Paul's original audience, the main audience, was not the person who would have been reading this letter physically, because this was written to a whole region of churches, and so this letter was meant to be read aloud. And so Paul, he wants everyone to know, I'm writing this last part with my own hand, but how would you know that if I were reading this to you aloud? So what Paul does is he says, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The person reading that would have known already, but he writes that in there so that the audience reads it. Smart guy, that Paul. And so as soon as he starts writing with his own handwriting and he has signaled to his hearers as much, Paul gets about the business of concluding and the first thing Paul does is gets one final shot in, one last jab at the opponents he's been referencing throughout this letter who are in and around these churches in Galatia. See, the, the occasion or what caused Paul to decide to write this letter were these false teachers that had shown up in these churches Paul planted that he loved so much, preaching this message that faith is not enough 
to save. See, Paul's message, as I mentioned, was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Faith alone in Christ alone leads to the grace of God which saves. Guaranteed. Faith leads to salvation. And then Paul always taught that salvation will result in behavior change. In a changed life, in heart change. The false teachers taught, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus. But then here's some stuff you have to obey. And if you do those two things well enough, then that will result in what we call being saved, being redeemed in eternal life. Paul's been blasting away at those false teachers through this whole book. And he's going to get one more shot in, in his own writing before he closes. Verse 12, he says to his audience, those false teachers who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. I want to explain from verse 12 what that would have looked like to Paul's original audience. How these false teachers, what they were doing, and how that helped them avoid, they hoped, persecution. Most of us know the earliest Christians faced stiff persecution. A whole lot of modern Christians face real persecution too. Did you know more of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being executed for being Christians today than were being executed in Paul's day? That's true. But these original persecutors, uh, it was not the government, it wasn't the pagans, it was the Jews. They were the original persecutors of the church. The Jews were, were very offended by this message that said God could, would redeem someone, would justify someone. God would change the way he viewed someone simply by a gift of his grace. That it was so offensive that God would consider someone to be righteous who hadn't been working super hard to keep the law. That was an abominable message to them. And so they began to persecute anyone like Paul, who would spread this message that God would save real-life sinners, like a sinner in the wild, before they changed the way they behaved. So these Judaizers, we call them sometimes, these Jewish legalists, they thought they figured out a way to play both sides. They were Jews themselves, they kind of thought Jesus was the Messiah, but they thought they had found a way to have Jesus and rid themselves of persecution at the same time. It went like this. Because our persecutors, what they're super mad about is converts to Christianity aren't uh, being circumcised if they're male. They're not following the food laws. They're not uh, becoming strict uh, followers of this, observers of the Sabbath. So they said this, if that's the list... Let's just tell all new Christians they've got to do those things and voila, the persecution will vanish. We can have Jesus and please the persecutors at the same time. 
But Paul said, those clowns aren't even preaching the gospel. Don't listen to them. Paul said, what they will be doing is converting people to their behavioral list and not to the cross of Christ. You cannot have Jesus without the rejection that sometimes comes with Jesus. You can't scrub it all out of there. Don't think this doesn't happen today also, because it does. It can happen inside churches like ours. Because sometimes we don't know what to do with a real-life sinner in the wild, right? Remember, we've approached this book. The safest, the best way to understand this book is, is to come to it with your hand in the air saying this, I am a legalist. I have a list of things that will make me reject another person also. And inside the church, it's usually worked like this. We have got to figure out what, like, every church has its own list. And kind of subconsciously or unconsciously, what becomes important is not stepping outside that behavioral list, or at least not letting anyone know that you do. And when we find someone that has, that's when we have public shame to control those behaviors. But whenever I have one list that we must keep, I necessarily have another list behind my back. That's the list of sins that must not be that big of a deal. Remember, it is not grace that minimizes sin. It's legalism. Because grace says all of it is enough to damn me forever all of it is a problem. I'm just saved and redeemed from it. Legalism says, these are the big ones. These ones, I mean, we can sort of let go. Another way this works out. So in the, in the church, we can figure out how to behave so that the, the legalistic tendencies don't get pointed at me. In other denominations, in other traditions, it works this way. We don't want the outside world to talk bad about us. So what do we do? We start to figure out the, the hermeneutical gymnastics, the interpretive gymnastics it takes to make it seem like this book doesn't always say what this book very clearly says. So if the rest of the world says, you know what? Certain kinds of sexual sin aren't a sin anymore. Homosexuality, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean what it says. Homosexuality is not a sin anymore. That's old-fashioned. There are not distinct gender roles in the home, in a church. That's not what the original authors actually meant. Now, why do we do that? Because I can have Jesus, I think, and they can't talk bad about us anymore. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Paul says, 
what they're doing. They're trying to make a good showing in the flesh. They're trying to control behavior to make the persecution stop. And it won't work. It never has. Which is why Paul says in verse 13, basically, don't believe for a second that the most behaviorally righteous among you, uh, as measured by the list that's important to your church, don't think for a second that they keep the whole law, because they don't. It's just that if they can make the pressure right to get to a position of compliance, the pressure will stop on them. Maybe even in their own hearts where they can think, I'm doing this now. They want to boast in your flesh because of your compliance so that they can boast in their own. And that's wrong, which is why Paul gives us something of a battle cry in verse 14. If you've never memorized a verse of Scripture, let me suggest Galatians 6.14 for you. Paul says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. As Paul traveled around preaching grace, he constantly had to answer these attacks against grace. We've talked about them throughout this book. They go like this. So you're telling me, Paul, If I believe in Jesus, I'm declared righteous, that means I can sin whatever sin my flesh wants to sin and I won't have any problems because God has to forgive me anyway. I'll just abuse this grace. And when Paul heard those arguments, what did he used to say? He wrote it to the Romans. Paul used to say, like in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul would always say this, May it never be. No way. That's not the way this works. That's ridiculous. May it never be. That's Paul's emphatic way of denouncing that. Well, check, check out what Paul does with those words, may it never be today, though. Today, Paul says to the legalist, who, by the way, is the person that says, grace cannot be the way this works. If grace is the way this works, you're setting up a system where people are going to go crazy. They probably won't even show up to church anymore. They're going to think they're redeemed. How are we going to control anyone if we preach grace? Paul says, may it never be. Then Paul says, now, here's something else, may it never be. May it never be. That's just the same emphatic language. May it never be that I would boast in anything I have done in my flesh. May it never be that I would boast in religious things that I have done that make me think, why is God okay with me? Because I've taken that, I've eaten that, I've gone through that, I've been dunked under that, I've been sprinkled there, I've been whatever. May it never be that I would boast in the way I've changed, the way I've improved. May it never be 
that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about the boast recently in this book. The boast in the ancient world before before these ancient armies went off to battle, the boast is what they would use to try to convince themselves they were going to win the day. Paul is saying, may I never have any boast. Why will God be okay with me? Have you asked yourself that question lately? Ask yourself this question, if God is okay with me, why is God okay with me? That's your boast. That's what you're telling yourself will be the reason why you win that day when you stand before God. That's your boast. And Paul says, may it never be that I would boast in anything except one thing, that he was lynched with the lynching I deserve. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is God okay with me? Because he rejected him that he might accept me, period. What's your boast? What is your boast that you tell yourself? May it never be that it would be anything except Jesus already paid what I deserve. Now, if we get that far, that is why The world should be crucified to me and I should be crucified to the world. If my boast is Christ and Christ alone, His righteousness, not mine, then the world should be crucified to me and I should be crucified to the world. Paul says that was true about him. That the world would be crucified to me means... That the things I used to look toward to try to get me what I really want have been crucified, have been executed. I see those things as dead in their ability to give me what I used to try to get from them. And we all have these things. There are idols. So Paul says, I no longer ask material things to give me comfort. I no longer ask, try to get to a point where if I have more than most other people have, that makes me feel like I want to feel. That's dead to me. Paul says, I I no longer ask achievement to make me somebody that's dead to me. I don't ask other relationships with other people, romantic involvement to make me feel desired or desirable. That's dead to me. Paul says, my identity is in what I boast in. You know how I know I'm desirable? Because he died for me. He desired to have me. You know how I know I'm somebody? Because he died to have me. 
Do you know why I'm not asking the rest of the, of the material things in the world? Why I'm not collecting more and more of God's stuff to try to make myself feel like more? Do you know why? Because my eternal perspective tells me it's all kindling and worm food. It's temporary. And someday I'm going to have stuff, whatever his stuff looks like. I'm going to have stuff that makes all this down here look like nothing. It's dead to me. Is the world crucified to you? That's quite a word. Crucified. Executed. Would you ask something dead on the side of the road to make you feel significant? Love. Let me think about that. Those of you who drove into town this morning, there's a raccoon on the side of the road. It's all bloated laying there like this. You would never pull over and try to impress that raccoon, right, to make you feel significant. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Listen, that's what crucifying the world to you means. It's not that there's not a purpose for me in the world. It's not that there's not people out there I need to impact, but as far as its ability to give me what I really want, it's dead, it's executed, it's roadkill. I get that from Christ. The world is crucified to me, but then Paul says, but I have been crucified to the world. I think we have to understand this to live a growing Christian life faith. You have got to understand that if you are going to treat the world like it's been crucified to you, if you are not going to measure yourself the way the rest of the world measures people, guess what you're going to face from the world? Rejection, confusion. Are you okay with that? You'll never be until the world is crucified to you. You can't be crucified to the world until the world is crucified to you. Listen, rejection hurts anyway. But it will kill you if you're still trying to get your acceptance and significance from the world. If the world is crucified to you, then you can be crucified to the world and the rejection won't hurt as long as bad. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Continuing in the same vein, Paul writes in verse 15, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Paul says here, What really matters, what really should matter to me in my life is the new creation that God has made me and God is making me. That's what should matter. 
Paul uses circumcision and uncircumcision as like his test case, but we really can fill in that blank with about anything. Paul is telling us, I think first and foremost, one other thing that's got to die if we're going to do this Christian life thing well, and that is comparative morality. For Paul, he's telling his original audience, don't measure people by what religious things they have done and are doing. That doesn't matter. It's not that morality and obedience don't matter. May it never be. A man will reap what he sows. It matters. But what really counts is the new creation that I have been made because of the Christ and because of the cross of Christ and what I am being made as I walk with him. So what matters is not how I am doing morally compared to you or compared to someone else. That doesn't matter. In fact, and this is, I'm going to refer to Brian Clark's book that I, that I uh, recommended several weeks ago, I think three times in the rest of our time. It's called God's Not Like That. Buy it. Read it. He sets, sets this out uh, in a really compelling way. What matters is not how I am doing compared to you or compared to someone else. When we do that, we will invariably either find people much lower than us so we feel fine or what we think are much higher than us so we feel like a lousy loser, which is in some ways what we want to feel when we're punishing ourselves gracelessly. But Brian lays this out. If there's a, a person that struggles with more sort of overtly immoral things than I do, like the, the real sinner in the wild, right? But if that person, they're still struggling, they've learned to hate the sin that they sin. They used to not care. They used to chase it. They've come to know Christ. Now they hate it. And they are starting to head toward, toward life with Jesus Christ, though they're still struggling. That person is way ahead of me if I'm pretty satisfied with where I'm at because of all the evidence I collect. I look at that person with all their sins and think at least I'm not like that person. What I don't know is that person's actually way ahead of me. Because you know what matters? The new creation, what God is growing in me. And if I have gotten to the point where I feel like, man, I'm good because I'm better than that guy, what I'm missing is he's growing and I'm probably regressing. My focus as a Christian is not how I'm doing compared to someone else. It is the new creation, what he wants to make out of me. And because that's what matters, then my focus of my spiritual life should be my spiritual life. It's not how someone else's irresponsibility and lack of a spiritual life makes me so miserable. In God's not like that, 
one simple little sentence really struck me, I think, more than any other sentence in the book. It's this, compliance isn't heart change. Compliance isn't heart change. What Paul says in Galatians is the thing that matters is the new creation. That's heart change. That's growth. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can do that, correct? What does the Holy Spirit use? What are His weapons? He does use conviction. He does use uh, confrontation done well. We looked at that a few weeks ago, though. What it looks like, it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Because you see, there are ways where I can try to achieve compliance in another person that does not include heart change. And when I am when I'm using anger and bitterness, when I'm using manipulation, when I am using boundaries and weapons and, and all of these things to try to get compliance, and if I'm making compliance more likely, but heart change less likely, I'm not just wasting my time. I'm actually fighting for the wrong team. What matters is not what I can get you to do. What matters is if your heart is changing. So in verse 16, Paul ends where he began. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Follow what rule? To follow this idea that what counts for me is what God is doing in me. How I am changing. What's my heart like? How do I tell? Well, what is the harvest that's growing? Does it look like the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If not, I got some my own confession repentance to do. I've got hard work to do for me because what matters is what God is doing with me and my heart and then how he can use me to reach towards someone else to partner with his Holy Spirit. The person who understands that rule is going to get peace and mercy. Paul started this book by saying grace and peace. Grace is what brings peace. Grace is what brings peace. In my relationship with God, if there's no grace, there's no, there's no me. I heard that in Sunday school this morning. If there's no grace, I have no chance with God. Listen, in your relationships with those you love, if there's no grace, you don't have a chance there either. You might get to compliance, but you won't get to peace. And God's not like that. Uh, Brian quotes a counselor who writes this. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live into God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And number two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. 
And he writes, we read, we hear, and we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. So from now on, uh, as Paul signs off, he asserts his apostolic authority in in an interesting way. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I'm the apostle Paul. You should listen to me. And then here's his resume. He says, I bear the body, I bear on my body uh, the, the marks of Jesus. We know from the book of Acts, it was in the region of Galatia that Paul received a stoning. People threw rocks at him till they thought he was dead. He was hit with a cane across his bare back. And so at the end, one last time he asserts his apostolic authority and it's like what he does is like he pulls up his shirt and he says, look back there, there's my resume. This is Paul saying, you can be sure I heard this message straight from the mouth of Jesus, otherwise I would have quit a long time ago. If I didn't believe this message of grace was true, I'd be doing what those guys are doing, which is trying to avoid this. And he signs off by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren, which we can understand as brothers and sisters. The more the grace of Jesus saturates our spirit, the more at peace we will be with ourselves and with others. And that is the book of Galatians. Don't miss the point. First, from this book, God graciously saves with a free gift all those who believe on Jesus Christ. What is the boast you tell yourself when you stand before God is going to make him like give you a passing grade and let you into eternal life? If it's not that Jesus Christ rescued you when you were unrescuable otherwise. Then your eternity is in the balance. Second, the gospel sets us free to become who God created each of us to become. The gospel Paul talked a lot about freedom. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. In this book, he talked a lot about that freedom. But what does that that freedom mean? Freedom is only found in becoming this new creation who God actually created me to be. There is no freedom outside of that. It's like a train deciding. It's kind of a bummer that I have to stay on these tracks. I wish I was free to frolic about the countryside wherever I feel like going. What would happen to a train who did that? It's called a train wreck, right? It's a derailment, right? The gospel sets that the train was made, created to glide down those tracks, fulfilling its purpose. That's where its freedom lies. For us, the gospel sets us free to be who God created us 
to be and to do what God created us to do. Any other kind of fake freedom that's outside of that does not result in freedom. It results in bondage. Third, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we focus on who he is making me and that freedom that I have, he will change me into a person who loves others graciously. He will change me into a person who loves others graciously because that's how I understand I was loved. I am not so good that God likes me now. He was so good that God loves me now. And I'm his kid and he wants me. And remember, you cannot be gracious towards someone who deserves it. It's not grace. And finally, my primary focus in my spiritual life should be what and who he is making me. Not about what that other person and their, the lack of their whatever and how they're messing up. What is he making me? Who is he asking me to become so that he might use me to be gracious towards someone else, to love someone else the way he loved me. That's how the world has been being changed for 2,000 years. And there is no other program. It's us. It's people who've been changed by grace, reaching out graciously to people who need change and partnering with the Holy Spirit to be about that work. That's Galatians. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book. I'm always a little sad when we finish one, uh, but I do look forward to what you have for us next in the book of James. Father, as we close this book, I thank you for the grace by which we are saved. And God, I pray you would help us not to miss the point. The point of the cross of Jesus Christ is grace and the peace that comes through grace. Help us to be gracious. And God, help us more and more to crucify the world and crucify ourselves to the world that we might be different, not in that we are more moral, not that we are uh, primarily in any way better, but just that we have been changed by your grace that is uncaused and undeserved. And it is what the world needs. Thank you for making us new. Don't stop. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up with us and we'll finish our time together.